You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year and all the other things. It's season two. Season two, which we're really excited about because it feels like it's been like forever. Yes. And we are so excited to be back. So, so excited. And uh, Autumn, how's your new job going? I love it. I am so happy there. I am so supported. I want to give a little shout out to Teresa and Nicole Giamatti. They are so cute with reposting our podcast Instagrams. And Teresa even did a cute little video, little reel. You guys should go to Instagram. You guys should really check that out. It's super cute. It was awesome. It's always nice to feel like people actually listen. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, people do listen to what we have to say. I know it's crazy. It's, I mean, there's a lot, there's so many people that are supporting us and we just love to see when you retweet us and when you share our stories and when you answer the polls and help us pick cases, you guys have no idea how helpful that oh, is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not to say murder gets boring, but sometimes I am just like, I have seen so many of these. I got to find something unique. You know, it can be hard. So we definitely appreciate the suggestions. Yeah. And it also helps knowing what you want to listen to. So we can hone in on the cases that you want to hear. Just all, you know, acts, murders, and decapitations. I get it. I get it. I hear you. (laughs) You're Um, known for dismemberment. (laughs) Apparently I'm known for children. So, I mean, I don't know which one's worse. (laughs) Missing or murdered children. That's Autumn's thing. (laughs) Right. I'm like getting this reputation. I'm like, that's honestly not my thing, but these kids stories deserve to be heard. So I'm, so I'm the one that has to suck. (laughs) Yeah. Figure it out on them. Uh, okay. So we have some exciting news to tell you. We are now brand ambassadors for she's birdie. It's a modern personal safety alarm made by women for women. Obviously, it can be used by anyone. Um, but both Autumn and I carry ours with us at all times. Yes, we and do. It, it just goes right on your keychain. It's really sleek. It's small. It's lightweight. I personally am a sexual assault survivor, and it helps give me peace of mind when I am walking anywhere or you know, especially, I mean, I like to go out at night and, you know, if I'm alone, it just makes me feel a lot more comfortable. Um, what it does do. So if you feel threatened, you pull the end of it and it will sound a 130 decibel siren and it activates a bright flashing strobe light. It is so freaking loud. (laughs) So incredibly loud. And it will attract attention for sure. And it will keep going continuously for 40 minutes until you plug the little key at the end back in. Autumn, you experienced how, I mean, of course, when you get it, you're supposed to check it and make sure it works. But Autumn experienced how loud it could be because she accidentally. Yes, I was at Target and I pulled my pin of the She's Birdie alarm on accident when I was trying to pull something out of my purse. You have to use a lot of force. What you don't know is Autumn carries a lot of big purses. So <laughs> it was actually because it was a small purse this time. Oh, it was a small, was yes, it was a small little purse. I was pulling something out and I grabbed the wrong end of the keys and yanked. And all of a sudden it started shrieking and I was panicking because I didn't expect that to happen. Yeah. And I, and I'm like standing there and I'm, I'm so nervous because it's going off and I have to put the pin back in and everyone's staring at me. It's okay. It just looked like you robbed the place or something. Well, the security guard <laughs> didn't even move. He just was staring at wow. me. Wow. Great but job. This lady with her little girl came up to me afterward and she goes, is that like a personal security device? And I was like, 
yes. She goes, it works. And I'm like, yes, yeah. it, does. <laughs> it does. Well, and what I like about the product in particular is that it's nonviolent. You know, you don't have to, it's not like a taser or pepper spray where you actually have to get close to someone to use it. Mm-hmm. You can be further away if you feel uncomfortable, like say you're on a run or you're, you know, walking to your car or in a parking garage or something like that. You can pull it. You don't have to be close to anybody. But if you are close to them, that flashing strobe light is not just bright enough for just to, it could disorient someone or it could, you know, kind of temporarily sort of blind them in their eyes a little bit. It is really bright, you know, so for them to be disoriented is good. It gives you a chance to just get the fuck out of there and don't ever be worried that, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, trust your gut because your gut will tell you it's time to get the fuck out of there. And it's, there's nothing wrong with pulling it. Even if it was, you know, even if it was ended up being a safe situation, if you feel uncomfortable, you pull that fucking alarm. You know, I, I always had one when I was, when I was going to night school, because I, I had one with me when I was in the parking garage at night, because it was, you know, it could be kind of sketchy. Um, the one that I had was this, this older one. It wasn't by she's birdie, but it was, it was like big and, and bulky and it, the pin in it came out all the time, like all the time. So what I like about she's birdie is you do have to use a little bit of force to be able to pull it apart. Um, so you're not going to have like, unless you're jam packing your purse, you're not really going to fall. I mean, that was completely um, my fault, <laughs> but I, uh, we do have for our listeners, you can use promo code, not murder 15 and get 15% off your purchase of she's birdie. I highly recommend it. Like I said, it's for peace of mind. I mean, I feel so much more comfortable, uh, with mine. We'll post about it on our Instagram Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us anytime. We'd be happy to answer it. It's, uh, murder, not murdering on Instagram or info at murder, not murdering.com. And we'd be happy to talk about it or let you know our experiences. All right. So sorry, I had the hiccups. My God, you're fired. (laughs) So back to, (laughs) I can't handle it. Did you just snort? (laughs) I did. You have to cut that. No way, dude. So, um, we're going to jump into things because it's been a while and we're ready to talk about some murder. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, seriously, it feels like it's been forever. Uh, this time autumn will start us off and go first, and then I will be doing a wild, uh, roller coaster after her. So you ready to start us off autumn? I sure am. Let's go. This is the case of the murder of Kelsey Ann Smith. On Saturday, June 2nd, 2007, 18-year-old Kelsey Ann Smith of Overland Park, Kansas, left her home to go to Target to buy a gift for her boyfriend, John. They were celebrating six months together. Kelsey was born on May 3rd, 1983, to Greg and Missy Smith. Her father, Greg, was a police officer. Her family has said she was a fun kid to be around and went out of her way to make people feel welcomed. She was a popular outgoing student who had just graduated nine days earlier from Shawnee Mission West High School and was excited to go to Kansas State University to become a veterinarian. Kelsey called her mom from Target. She needed help picking out a gift bag from the present she had bought her boyfriend. It was a quick phone call, and her mom thought she would be on her way home shortly. It was around 7 p.m., and she was supposed to leave for her date with John around 7.30 p.m. John shows up to Kelsey's home, but she isn't home as of yet. 30 minutes goes by before her dad and boyfriend start to worry. Yeah, I'd be freaking out at that point. Yeah, especially when you know she's so excited to give him their well, six month anniversary gift. Talked to her mom, and she said that she, you know, she had just talked to her mom and said she was about to head out. So it, the fact that she wasn't there would be alarming. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's a cop, so he was trying not to worry so so quickly. But I mean, thirty minutes, and he's like, mm. "Yeah, I'd be freaked out." Yeah. 
Kelsey was a very responsible teenager and she would always check in if she was running even just a few minutes late. She wasn't answering her phone or any kind of text messages. Assuming her phone was dead, Kelsey's sister, Lindsay, and Kelsey's boyfriend, John, hop in the car to head to Target to see if they are able to find Kelsey. Fully expecting to find her stranded in the parking lot, waiting for someone to come help her. They search the Target parking lot and are unable to find any sign of Kelsey or her car. Her mom, Missy, starts to worry that she's been in a car accident and is unable to call for help. Yeah, I mean, that I'd be starting to call the hospitals and such. Mm-hmm. Her dad started calling local dispatchers, trying not to panic, but there was no trace of Kelsey. No one had pulled her over. She wasn't in any hospitals. There was no sign of her. Four hours goes by and her boyfriend and sister are still driving, looking around for her car. They detour through a nearby shopping mall and there in the Macy's parking lot, they find Kelsey's car. Relieved, they hop out of their car and race over to the 1987 Buick Regal. But there is no Kelsey. Mm -hmm. Lindsay calls her dad right away and tells him they found her car, but not her sister. Greg's police training tells him that they need to call the authorities And he asks his daughter and John not to touch anything, that there could be important clues that they do not want to tamper with. Police arrive on the scene and discover that Kelsey's purse, wallet, and the items that she bought were all still in the car. There's something else. A bag of some sort is hanging outside of the trunk and the family and authorities are fearing the worst. Yeah. They have to wait for the forensic team to open the trunk. Oh God, that would be excruciating. Everyone hoping that if she was in the trunk, she was still alive. Yeah. It felt like an eternity. I'm sure. I'm sure. Once the trunk was finally opened, there was no sign of Kelsey in the trunk. Oh, thank God. At least mm-hmm. for that moment, they could that, some, yeah, exactly. a little bit of relief, but they still don't know where she is now. Everyone was extremely worried. Where was Kelsey Smith? Police need to speak to the last known people to see and speak to her and immediately bring in her parents, Missy and Greg for questioning as well as her boyfriend, John. Greg being a police officer, he knows this is standard and he lets his wife know that they need to answer all the questions they are asked as honestly and as efficiently as possible. He wants them to be able to clear them as suspects so they can move on to finding who has their daughter or what happened to her. I think that's really smart. There's so many times that people just become crazy defensive and like, Mm -hmm. why are you suspecting me? But they're just trying to get as much information as possible. Exactly. I totally agree. Especially since he's like prepping his wife, don't be defensive. We just need to make sure they have all the information they can get. This is important to help find Kelsey. Exactly. While Kelsey's parents and boyfriend are being questioned, detectives realize that there are surveillance cameras in the parking lot where Kelsey's car was left and also in Target. Target is known for using a large array of video cameras that are top of the line. It is late and the Target store is now closed, so they will need to wait until the morning to obtain the footage. No, I hate that. I know. Like, can you imagine? No. Not surprisingly, her parents were cleared right away. In addition to her boyfriend, John, everyone is racing against time to find out what happened to Kelsey. The fingerprints they had pulled off of Kelsey's vehicle are of an unidentified person. Detectives get a hold of the surveillance footage from Target the evening that Kelsey went missing. Her entire trip to the store has been caught on camera and they need to review every piece of it for clues as to where Kelsey might be. 6.54 p.m. on June 2nd, Target cameras pick up Kelsey arriving in the parking lot. She gets out of her car alone and is seen walking through the parking lot towards the entrance. Detectives were watching to see if she may have made contact with anyone during the trip. They see her on camera just before 7 p.m. 
calling her mom about the gift bags. She is casually walking around the store and selecting her items. She does not appear to be under any distress and she has not had any interactions with anyone in the store. She goes to the cashier, purchases her items and leaves the store just 10 minutes after arriving. She gets to her car, backs up and leaves the parking lot. The detectives have found no evidence that she spoke with anyone in the store and it appears she made it to her car alone and was exiting to go home. They watched the video over and over again, but it wasn't until it was slowed down that they discovered something shocking. In the parking lot, it shows a flash on the screen. Slowed down, it appears that it is someone racing through the parking lot and forcing Kelsey into her car. Oh my God. And it was only picked up when they slowed it down. That's how fast it was. Yeah, they must have been booking. They knew immediately that this was now an abduction. Something criminal had happened to Kelsey. Now they needed to comb through all the surveillance of her in the store once again. Upon watching the footage, they now notice a male in his early 20s wearing a white shirt and dark shorts who entered the store about 30 seconds after Kelsey. They noticed the man is in every aisle that Kelsey had been shopping in, and he appeared in almost every part of the footage she is seen in. So he was following her. Mm-hmm. But at a very discreet distance. Mm-hmm. They notice he keeps looking at Kelsey or in her direction, but he made no effort to talk to her or approach her in the store and was seen leaving empty handed right as she was checking out with her items. Because of the camera quality, they were able to capture a clear picture of the man leaving the store. Like of his face? Mm-hmm. It was clear to them that he wanted to get outside before Kelsey. He had been watching her in the store to see if she knew anyone or was meeting up with anyone. And when it was clear to him that she was alone and was checking out, he left the store to wait for his opportunity outside. They watched the footage of the parking lot just before Kelsey arrived at Target. And it shows a suspicious 1970s era Chevrolet truck entering just before Kelsey had. They were, they were able to also pull the surveillance video from the Macy's parking lot where Kelsey's car had been discovered. It shows that the car had been left there at 9.17 p.m., about two hours after she was last seen at Target. And it showed a figure in a white shirt and dark pants leaving the vehicle and running towards the street. Damn it. Though it was too dark to clearly identify the human or if it was a male or a female, the clothing seemed consistent to the footage from the Target store of the male that had been following her around the store. Yeah. Detectives were able to get a clear image of his face and his clothing as he was exiting the store. And they released this image to the media about 25 hours after Kelsey had initially been abducted. When they put the image out and received about 2000 tips, they were desperate to narrow it down even further. They didn't have the time or the manpower, even with neighboring departments helping them to comb through all the tips in time to save Kelsey. If she was still alive, they needed to work fast. They go back to the time frame of the figure parking Kelsey's car and running across the street. They have a suspicion that the abductor came back for his own vehicle after Kelsey's car in the Macy's parking lot. They go back to the target surveillance around the time of the drop off of of her car. And sure enough, they spot the suspicious 1970s truck leaving the parking lot. Did they get plates? Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I'm so excited. I'm like, what's happened? Unfortunately, the surveillance video in the parking lot itself is not as clear as in the store. So they weren't able to get plates. That's also how it took them slowing down the footage to notice that she was 
abducted as well. Well, hopefully they can cross-reference at least that style pickup to some of the names that they have or something like that. I mean, the picture of him is clear as day. Like they got a good picture of him. The police released the truck's information in addition to the description they had released the day prior. And three and a half days later, they received the call they were hoping for. A woman who had seen the footage recognized the man as her neighbor, Edwin Roy Hall. Police, police rushed to his home where he was in the process of leaving town with his wife and son. He told police they were going on a planned vacation. Mm-hmm. That's very suspicious, sir. That was a sarcastic, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, oh, we're just going on a family vacation. Sure you were. Like, Oh, okay, sir. Weird timing, huh? Mm -hmm. They bring him in for questioning and fingerprinting on the evening of June 6th. They question him and ask him if he knows who Kelsey is. He admits to seeing her at Target and made a comment that she had nice legs and was very cute. What the fuck? Right? Right? I do not like that at all. No. But said he never made contact with her and he had nothing to do with her disappearance. While he was being questioned, his fingerprint matched the fingerprint pulled off the seatbelt release button. They knew they had the right man. Edwin had no adult criminal record. He did, however, have a juvenile record of assault. He had been adopted at the age of seven, but was returned to state custody at the age of 15 after he threatened his adoptive sister with a knife. Yeah, that's fucking awful. (laughs) He also assaulted another boy by hitting him in the head with a baseball bat. Oh, my God. I mean, that's That's very violent. violent. Yes, very violent. That takes it up from like an argument or like even just shoving or punching. Or even like brandishing, brandishing a knife. I mean, you, you hit this person in the head. Yeah, that's awful. He was now a married man with a four-year-old son of his own. Detectives had made a grim discovery on June 6th at 1.30 p.m., discovering Kelsey's body in a wooded area near Longview Lake in Grandview, Missouri. Oh, man. Which was just 18 to 20 miles from the target where she was abducted. She was killed by strangulation. She had been choked with her own belt. Oh, It's just heartbreaking. So sad. The autopsy also revealed she had been sexually assaulted. They had been able to find her based off of a ping from her cell phone, but it had taken Verizon four days to hand over the cell phone records to investigators, causing the delay in locating her body. Edwin Roy Hall was charged on June 7th, 2007 with premeditated murder and aggravated kidnapping. He was eligible for the death penalty, but offered a full confession to avoid the sentence. On July 23rd, he made a plea agreement in exchange for his full confession and was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. Because of the delay in the cell phone records being released to the detectives, there is now the Kelsey Smith Act. At the time, cell phone companies would only give information to the subscriber unless a court order was issued, which takes time. Yeah. Under the Kelsey Smith Act, a law that states that cell phone companies can ping a phone if authorities determine the subscriber is in danger. Most states have passed this law. And it is under debate to become a federal law. I That's great. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. I mean, they should be able to, I mean, if you are concerned that someone is unsafe, then, you know, I know people are really funny about their privacy, but I, I think it's well worth it. A hundred percent, especially the parents of this young woman sure. knew something was wrong. Edwin Hall is serving out his sentence at the Hutchinson Correctional Facility in Hutchinson, Kansas. My sources were Wikipedia and the ID channel See No Evil. Wow, that was terrible. (laughs) I know. 
And I was just thinking, it's so sad. And the whole time I'm like, honestly, not to sound cheesy or bring it back to us being brand ambassadors, but even having a she's birdie in that situation would have brought attention Totally. To her being ambushed by this person in the parking well, especially lot, especially on on a keychain, like like we like I have mine or you have yours. Mm-hmm. It's on a keychain. You could just yank it, and yes. you, you know, at least it would have been something. Something would have drawn attention. People would have known sooner that she had been abducted instead of over twenty four hours later when they were reviewing the footage. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, I feel like, yeah, most definitely that that could have that could have been something that helped. Uh, it's just so scary and so sad, you know, it's I so heartbreaking Yeah, for, for her family. And, you know, and honestly, I my, I feel heartbroken for his family as well, like his child and wife, because mm-hmm. to know that you are with somebody that's capable of something like that is really, really awful. A hundred percent. I just, and she had graduated high school nine days before then. Yeah. Nine days. It's just hard to hear of somebody so young being taken away that early for someone else's like fucked up shit. Right. And it's determined he didn't know her. He just saw an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just awful. But, you know, at least, you know, it's always hard to try to find a silver lining in someone's death because Mm -hmm. there's just really not somebody's not here anymore specifically. But right you know, hopefully more states will pass that law and, you know, it will help speed up um, and save some, some people's lives. Totally. I mean, if something good could come out of that, then at least it wasn't in vain. Totally. Um, Okay. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, You can hear from our sponsor and then we will be back with my story of an old timey Seattle crimey. Ooh, I'm excited. We'll see you in a minute. We are back. Um, so <laughs> I am going. <laughs> it's I'm so gonna... weird coming back after such a long break. I just hope everyone enjoyed my story. And I know it was a little rough, but whatevs. Yeah, that's what you get here. Whatevs, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. We're back. Okay. Yes. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> Anyway, on to my story. This is my time to shine, Autumn. I forgot. I'm so sorry. I'm stepping in on your time. Yeah, get off my jock. Okay. (laughs) I meant every word of that. I Uh, know you did. That's why I'm laughing. (laughs) Okay. I am going to be telling the story of the Mahoney trunk murder. Wow. What? Yep. You ready? Yes. James Edward Mahoney, who I will refer to as Jim from here on out. Was oh, a no. Former, yeah. So not a stabby Jim. Let's not just stabby Jim. Got separate, separate. Totally separate. Uh, was a former Milwaukee Railroad brakeman. In May 1918, Jim was convicted of drugging and robbing a young man in Spokane, Washington, and he was sentenced to serve from five to eight years in the Washington State Penitentiary. However... His mother, Nora Mahoney, and his sister, Dolly Johnson, engineered an early release from Governor Lewis F. Hart, supposedly one of their former neighbors. He was actually released on parole on December 23rd, 1920. He only served two years of that sentence. Jim Mahoney, now aged 36, then moves to Seattle, Washington to live with his family. Oh, we're so lucky to have him. Mm, You just wait. In 1920, Kate Morris, age 68, was living very comfortably, a.k.a. she was well off, (laughs) as the result of a recent divorce settlement from Dr. Charles E. Morris, a physician and a surgeon. She owned a small hotel in Belltown called the New Baker House, located on First Avenue. She also was part owner of the Sophia Apartments on Denny Way, where she lived. It was a really nice apartment building. Um, She also wore expensive diamond jewelry and drove a big seven passenger Westcott sedan. Though she was wealthy and flaunted it, 
she was well known for being quite the penny pincher. And that is the nicest thing that I read about her. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Kate Moores was also described as eccentric, moody, short, and balding. Her estimated worth was valued at at least $200,000 or $2.7 million today. So nothing to scoff at there. The New Baker House, her hotel that she had, was managed by Nora Mahoney and her daughter Dolly, who maintained the rooms and collected the rents. During a visit, Kate Moores was introduced to Nora's son, Jim Mahoney. Is love in the air? We will find out. Something's in the air. Following a very short courtship, and despite their 30-plus year age gap, which was odd for the time of their gender roles, to be clear, murder not murdering is not ageist, but it was weird (laughs) for a woman to marry someone younger. Obviously, at that time. Right. At the time. 60, you know, 68 and marrying like 14-year-olds. So it was not, it was just odd because of their gender roles. Despite all that, they were married in a civil ceremony on February 10th, 1921, using a wedding ring borrowed from Jim's sister, Dolly. They took up residence at Katie's Denny Way uh, apartment. Two months later, the Mahoney's started making plans for a belated honeymoon trip to go to St. Paul, Minnesota, and many other cities. They had planned to be away for an entire month. On Friday, April 15th, 1921, Kate Mahoney visited her safety deposit box and withdrew $1,600. Then she went to the Dexter Horton Building Bank and purchased $460 of American Express Traveler's Check. She told neighbors and friends that she and her husband were leaving on their honeymoon late Saturday night, around 10 p.m. On April 16, 1921, the Mahoney's closed up their Dennyway apartment and set off for the King Street Station. But only 11 days later, on April 27, 1921, Jim Mahoney returned to Seattle alone. He explained to Kate's neighbors and friends that she had remained in the East and was planning a trip to Havana, Cuba with friends. He returned to take care of Kate's business interests and would meet her later in New York City. This is very highly suspect. I was just about to say, I'm like, why... Would she send him to take care of all that? Exactly. Jim almost immediately filed a forged power of attorney with the King County auditor, which gave him access to Kate's property. He emptied the safe deposit box, collected rents, and made several attempts to convert her properties into cash. He began living the high life, purchasing new tailor-made suits, wearing Kate's diamond pins, and visiting (laughs) nightclubs. He was no. He was also seen driving her very expensive vehicle. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Kate's, he he did not play this down at all. No. (laughs) Kate's relatives and friends began to become very concerned when she failed to return to Seattle and Jim would not tell them where she could be contacted. They received some strange letters from St. Paul bearing Kate's name, but not in her handwriting. Jim seemed to have a lot of excuses of why she had stayed back east, ranging from a lover's quarrel to Kate deciding to travel with friends to New York, Boston, and Havana. Police were already worried about the missing bride when Kate's nieces, Kate Stewart and Carrie Hewitt, offered evidence that their aunt's signature had been forged on letters and documents. Handwriting experts confirmed the signatures were not hers. Mrs. Stewart could not determine how much cash and jewelry Mahoney had stolen from the safe deposit box, but believed it to be well over $30,000, which would be about $400,000 now. Jesus. Right? Police detectives Captain James Tennant and Lieutenant Chad Ballard carefully traced Mahoney's movements after the couple supposedly left on their honeymoon. The detectives discovered that on the evening of April 16th, 1921, Jim Mahoney telephoned the Seattle Transfer Company and asked the night dispatcher to send a truck to 409 Denny Way to move a heavy trunk. 
Alvin Jorgensen, the expressman, arrived at the Sophia apartments around 10 p.m. With Mahoney's help, he moved a heavy steamer trunk secured with a hemp rope from the apartment to the truck. Mahoney rode with Jorgensen to a houseboat on East North Lake Avenue on Portage Bay, where they loaded the trunk into a white skiff. Mahoney said he was going to take the trunk to his houseboat and rode away into the darkness. Oh my, what is this? You know, I love the drama. I know I'm dying for it. (laughs) The detectives interviewed a Miss Grace A. Renton and discovered that on Wednesday, April 13th, 1921, a man she later identified as Jim Mahoney inquired about renting the vacant half of her houseboat. Jim said that he wanted to do some fishing and asked where the deepest part of the lake was. She also saw him roaming around the area on April 14, 1921. Miss Renton said that she was gone on a Friday, returning home on the Saturday afternoon on April 16th. She found a note from Mahoney pinned to her door that read, have missed you twice. Hope the boat will be where I left it. A white skiff from near the nearby Howard and Sons boat builders was tied to the corner of the houseboat. Remember, he inquired about this on April 13th. He and Kate supposedly left on their honeymoon on the 16th. That means he has been planning this for a while. The boat was traced to a local boat builder who said that he had rented it to a man who called himself George Glassford. Later, the builder identified Mahoney by sight as the renter. The boat was found a week later near a houseboat sunk in shallow water. I have to say, though, when I first read that, I was like, George Glassford just made me think of, uh, what was it? Um, George Glass on my the Brady boyfriend, Bunch. George Glass. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you said that, I have to admit, I was thinking that, too. Other clues turned up at a hardware store and an attorney's office. Clerks at the store said that on April 16th, Jim purchased 30 feet of hemp rope and 10 pounds of quicklime and charged it to Kate's account. The day before, Jim and a woman posing as his wife visited the office of attorney Emil J. Brandt, requesting a power of attorney that authorized Jim to administer to Kate's estate. The woman that, who accompanied Mahoney that day was not Kate Moores. Brandt told police that she signed her name, Mrs. James E. Mahoney. But Mr. Brandt did not know that Kate hadn't married yet. So he didn't realize that this was an imposter. He later identified the woman as Mahoney's sister, Dolly. Unbeknownst to Jim, he had been under surveillance for three weeks, and it was and it appeared that he was preparing to leave Seattle. Captain Tennant decided it was time for some answers. On Sunday morning, May 22nd, 1921, Jim was washing the Westcott sedan in front of the Dennyway apartment when he was picked up for questioning by detectives Chad Ballard and William E. Justice. He had almost all of Kate's diamond jewelry valued over $25,000 in his pocket, which seems strange to me. Because, yeah, I was thinking that too. Why would you have all of it with you unless you were trying to do a quick getaway? Mm-hmm. During questioning, Jim told Captain Tennant that Kate had given him the jewelry to bring back to Seattle for safekeeping because she was going to Cuba. He was preparing to meet her in New York on June 1st, 1921. When asked about the forged traveler's checks, He said he wanted to speak to his lawyer, Lee Johnston. On May 23rd, 1921, Attorney Johnston filed a writ of habeas corpus in King County Superior Court, complaining that Mahoney was being held without charges and demanded his immediate release. Meanwhile, Detectives Ballard and Justice were driving Jim around the city, asking witnesses to identify him. He was released when they returned to the city jail, but was arrested immediately for forgery. Even though detectives suspected that he had killed Kate, they only had circumstantial evidence supporting a murder. 
The biggest question now was where did he hide the body? Captain Tennant had a theory and ordered divers to begin searching the bottom of the northeast end of Lake Union in Portage Bay for the steamer trunk. Meanwhile, detectives continued collecting evidence. During a bail hearing on June 1st, 1921, attorney Lee Johnston advised the court that Jim's Mah- Jim Mahoney's early release from the Washington State Penitentiary also granted him a complete pardon upon, what? Mm-hmm, upon the successful completion of his parole this month. Douglas immediately petitioned Governor Hart to forgo the pardon explaining that Mahoney was being held on a forgery charge and had committed other felonies, including the gravest character, murder. (laughs) Governor Hart responded that Jim would not receive a pardon unless all charges against him had been dropped and they solved what happened to Kate. So thank God. Yes. Or he would have gotten away with it completely because of before when his sister and his mom talked to the governor into giving him a pardon. Yeah. On Monday, August 8th, 1921, the divers riding on an underwater sled pulled by a tugboat inadvertently bumped into a floating object near the bottom, about 200 yards east of the university bridge in Portage Bay. It had been anchored to a large chunk of cement with the length of a hemp rope which had broke. The trunk bobbed to the surface and was recovered by a tugboat, Audrey. Captain Tennant, having survived 11 weeks of criticism, finally had the evidence of murder he was looking for. Although the quicklime had destroyed the face of the corpse, it was positively identified as Kate Moore's Mahoney. In addition to her clothing and other personal items stuffed into the trunk, There was Kate's false teeth and wedding ring that witnesses identified. The autopsy performed by King County Coroner Willis Corson revealed that she had been poisoned with at least 30 grains of morphine stuffed into the trunk while still alive and had the side of her skull crushed by blows with a heavy blunt instrument. Oh my God. I know. On Wednesday, August 10th, 1921, Prosecutor Malcolm Douglas charged James E. Mahoney in, King, in the King County Superior Court with first-degree murder of his wife, Kate. Jim entered a plea of not guilty, and the trial was set to start September 20th, 1921. Opening arguments began on Thursday morning, September 22nd. The trial proceeded at a speedy pace and, in, and was completely concluded in eight days. Over 60 witnesses took the stand to give testimony. Several witnesses identified Kate Mahoney's body and her personal effects found in the steamer trunk, while others documented Jim's movement in Seattle and St. Paul. The main witness for the prosecution was Alvin Jorgensen, the Seattle transfer company Teamster, who identified Jim Mahoney and the steamer trunk, and criminologist Luke S. May, the handwriting expert who had declared Kate Mahoney's letters and signatures to be forgeries. The prosecution rested its case on Wednesday morning, September 28, 1921. It's gonna, it doesn't get any better from here. So defense attorney Lee Johnston opened his defense on Wednesday afternoon, stating that Jim Mahoney had an alibi. He would prove that the body found in the Teamster in the steamer trunk was, was not Kate Mahoney and that she was alive after April 16th, 1921, the alleged date of the murder. The defense subpoenaed 27 witnesses, including Jim's mother and sister. As expected, the witnesses all testified that they had either seen or had contact with Kate Mahoney after April 16, 1921. Jim wisely chose not to testify in his own defense. (laughs) The defense rested its, its case on Friday afternoon, September 30th. 
Assistant Defense Attorney Louis B. Schwellenbach began closing arguments by accusing the police of framing Jim Mahoney for murder, suggesting that Captain Tennant had planted the trunk containing the body in Portage Bay. He said the trunk Jim had delivered to Lake Union actually contained bootleg liquor and and that was found in one of Kate's rentals. So he was just disposing it so he wouldn't so that his parole wouldn't be jeopardized. Mm-hmm. We don't believe you. Hmm. It seems like a to me, it seems like a lot of effort to dispose of booze. You could have emptied out and got rid of the bottles. You wouldn't need a trunk. You wouldn't need quick lime. Or any of that. Well, why is there a body in there now? Mm-hmm. Oh, because the police planted it, is what he's saying. That's right. That I forgot. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, attorney Schwellenbach concluded by stating that Jim Mahoney hadn't killed anyone and Kate's whereabouts were a complete mystery. At about 5 p.m., the case went to the jury. At around 10 p.m., court reconvened and a jury of eight men and four women returned the verdict. Mahoney was found guilty in the first degree. The jury voted to impose the death penalty. It had only taken them four hours and 40 minutes and 12 ballots to reach their decision. Nora Mahoney, his mother, stood expressionless. Dolly Johnson, his sister, fainted. And Jim Mahoney, who had made a bet with a guard on the outcome, won a cigar. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) What a weird prize. Mm. Dolly Johnson, Jim's sister, was arrested on on October 5th, 1921, and charged with first-degree forgery and grand larceny. She was accused of her complicity in forging Kate Mahoney's signature to the power of attorney, giving Jim Mahoney full control of her assets. She was also charged with grand larceny by obtaining money from an associate under false pretenses. Judge Everett Smith set her bail at $2,500, which she was unable to pay. A co-defendant in the grand larceny case told Captain Tennant that he and Johnson had planned to hire witnesses to clear Jim and if possible, fix a juror nice Mm. (laughs) hiring those witnesses there is some weird like codependent stuff with his sister that freaks me out a little yeah i mean (sighs) anyway so on friday october 14th attorneys johnson and schwellenbach presented arguments to Judge Ronald for a new trial on the grounds that there's been error, there was errors in the jury selection and the court's instructions to the jury regarding deliberations. The motions were denied and Judge Ronald <laughs> denied. denied. And Judge Ronald sentenced Jim Mahoney to hang on January 6, 1922. Mahoney quipped, Well, boys, I've been given a suspended sentence. Jim Jim had been in jail for 16 months. King County Sheriff Matthew Starwich gave him a special farewell dinner of roast chicken before driving him to the Walla Walla for execution. (laughs) You wanted roasted chicken? No, this isn't his last meal. This is something he did for him because he'd been there a long time and people liked him. What? So he gave him a roast chicken dinner before driving him to Walla Walla for his execution. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Right? I mean, crazy enough to make me snort just then. I don't know what's going on. I don't either. That's double snorts for the night. (laughs) I know. Anyone keeping track? Mm. Double snorts. It's a drinking game now. No. Um, Please don't (laughs) <laughs> On November 29th, 1922, Jim had learned from his attorneys that the U.S. Supreme Court had rejected his appeals. Although people thought he would never confess, he did exactly that. He provided Attorney Johnston with a written statement claiming full responsibility for his wife's murder and outlining all the details. What? Yeah. That's like the weirdest 180. <laughs> Nobody expected it. I mean, he was already sentenced to hang at this point, but 
Many believe that his confession was an effort to exonerate his mother and sister from any complicity in the killing. Jim actually blamed Kate for the murder, claiming that he had married her with the belief that he would be allowed to share in her wealth. However, that did not happen. He complained that she wouldn't trust him with enough money to go across the street to buy a bottle of milk, according to the Seattle Star. And that Kate's stinginess, irritability, and constant nagging were the reasons she had to die. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Dude, if you could. <laughs> he was had... I can't. Die. Jim was completely unaware that the following day, his sister Dolly also confessed to Kate Mahoney's murder. In a written statement provided to her attorney, Thomas Casey, Dolly claimed that she killed Kate in self-defense after a heated argument and her brother merely helped dispose of the body. It was a nice try, Dolly. It did not work. Dolly Johnson was convicted of first-degree forgery and grand larceny and sentenced to serve her time at the women's facility at the Wallow Washington State Penitentiary. On family. I know. On Thanksgiving Day, 1922, a special three-quarter inch hemp rope with the noose already tied had been imported from San Quentin Penitentiary just for this execution, which I find really interesting. And I don't know, there's no reason why. I couldn't find a reason why, but I just find that really interesting why they would have a noose from San Quentin sent over. Yeah, that is very strange. That night, Jim Mahoney ate his last meal, a traditional Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings. Later, he laid on his cot, eating his chocolates and reading the Seattle newspaper accounts of the preparations for his execution. Around midnight, Jim became apprehensive and he asked for a Catholic priest. Father Stephen Buckley heard of heard Mahoney's full confession. He had he administered the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church and stayed through the night. At 4 a.m., Jim was moved to a holding cell near the scaffold where he was shaved and dressed in new clothes. Just before 7 a.m., Warden Pace and Father Buckley escorted him to the prison yard. The execution had been announced for 7.37 a.m. at sunrise. James E. Mahoney was hanged at 7.02 a.m. on December 1st, 1922, 35 minutes ahead of schedule. It was witnessed by only prison officials. His body was taken down 12 minutes later and he was pronounced dead. Seeing no abrasion from the rope on Mahoney's neck, prison officials stated that it was the cleanest execution in the institution's history. Which also I find interesting that they decided to comment on that. I know. I was just thinking that. I didn't know they measured that. Yeah. They're like, no, it was like the best one, you guys. We just killed it. (laughs) Uh, no, quite literally. Ah, we're fun. Um, I know everyone missed us. <laughs> this is the kind of high brow comedy you're going to get here. Um, <laughs> after funeral services took place at St. Patrick's on December 11th, 1922, Jim was buried in an unmarked grave at the Mountain View Cemetery in Walla Walla, Washington. And that is the story of the infamous Mahoney trunk murder. My sources were historylink.org, murderpedia.org, and the daily news. I loved that. I always love the old ones. I do too. But you know, what's funny. Well, not funny. It's not funny at all, but we, you know how we always talk about how we have relations in Mm -hmm. our cases. Mm -hmm. We have trunks though. Hers was a car and mine was a steamer trunk. We also have missing persons. True. There's there's like, maybe that's just it. But I was like, oh my God, we have some, some commonalities. When you started talking about the trunk, I was like, I know she hurt. I I was thinking in my head, I was like, I know she thought when I said the trunk situation, she was like thinking that that was going to be the major connection. I know. But like the missing persons is like a big thing too. Totally. Yeah. Just kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I just, when I first came across that one, I just thought it was really fascinating and how it all went, you know, together. And then 
Well, we will post pictures on our Instagram, but there's pictures of them like dredging, like going through uh, Lake Union and a pictures of the steamer trunk. I'll post a picture of um, Kate uh, Moore's Mahoney, which I mean, I thought it was kind of mean how they described her. But um, yeah, no, I mean, she had just really thin hair that apparently she dyed like neon red, which probably made it stand out even further. Um, what an interesting color. Yeah, but she was, uh, she was just, she sounded like kind of like a piece of work. But, you know, it's just, you can see pictures of him. He was kind of handsome. Like he has like a little bit of like a, like a movie star sort of quality about him. You can tell he likes his nice suits and, you know, kind of like that. So you can see like, she must've been like, Ooh, I've got this young, like hot guy. And, and, you know, you can, you can just kind of tell he seems like, obviously I don't, I've never heard him talk, but he seems like kind of like a wisecracking sort of like quick witted sort of dude. You'll see, you'll see from the pictures. (laughs) My favorite part was, well, I've never heard him talk. Well, obviously. Um, oh <laughs> are we going to get another snort? Or no, no, I held it in and almost choked. Are you snorted out? <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Won't give you three. Yeah. You know what I loved about this one, though, is I just I, I love when it's a roller coaster. Yeah. And I just go through and you just are like, wait, what happened? Wait, no. You know, right. and, and when it goes to the like, trial and then they had to like, find her. And he kept like, I don't know why he didn't stay low key. Like you should have a hundred percent just kept it low key. They would have for sure caught him at some point, but maybe if he just came back, like emptied out all of her shit and then left and moved, went to another state. Like they didn't have computers and stuff, you know, they went, it, it'd be really hard to track him down. So well, yes, just saying he could have pawned all of her jewelry, had a bunch of cash and like went to Europe or something. You know, I don't know. I'm not out here giving tips and tricks to James E. Mahoney, but I'm just saying. I mean, you should have given him tips because then he wouldn't have been caught. It was weird to me that he kept hanging around for so long. I mean, I guess he was trying to prolong like people thinking that she was still coming back, you know, but it just. He should have just booked it out of town with that kind of money. They would never have found him. Well, I mean, I guess he was probably they said he was trying to sell her properties. So maybe he was just trying to get his maximum amount of money he could get. I don't know. I just found this really interesting. And, um, and also it's always nice to find a a local, local murder. So that was that. I liked it. I like the old timey crimey. I love old timey crimeys. Um, so we're going to be back next week with some new crimeys. (laughs) (laughs) New crimeys. <laughs> oh God. Uh, so we'll be back next week with some new stories for you all. And we've got some fun, exciting ones coming up too. So look out for those. Also, as we mentioned at the beginning, we are now brand ambassadors for She's Birdie. And if you aren't interested in buying one, please go to their website and use promo code NOTMURDER15 to get 15% off your purchase. And um, I don't know that I mentioned earlier, or maybe I did. I don't know. They also come in really cool colors. So you can. Yeah, I couldn't remember if we mentioned that or not. If you want to have your own style, you can, you know, they have yellow, coral, blue, um, white. Uh, I actually just ordered a new one because I've had mine for several years now. And uh, I'm going to give a couple to some friends. And I'm just, yeah, I. 100% 100% feel like this is a great company. I've supported them for a long time. I told Autumn she had to buy one very, yeah. very forcibly. <laughs> and now like I own a, a lavender ago. one. <laughs> yeah, probably about a year ago. I was like, you must buy this. They also come out with cool different colors throughout the seasons. And they did like a really cool pride collection as well. Uh, so yeah, just keep an eye out. You can follow them on Instagram or Facebook. And it's really a product that I believe in. Obviously I've used it for a long time and, um, you know, I'd rather people were able to stay safe, whatever means that is, you know, and if it gives you peace of mind and it could possibly save your life, then why the fuck not? 100%. Trust your gut, 
We love you guys. Go to the Insta to see pictures from our stories tonight and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.